So please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable, at ease. And again, as you listen, um, the Buddhist teachings are not meant to be something that you swallow unchewed and undigested. Um, They're really more offered as reminders to the heart of what we already know. So rather than taking them in, what one does at best is to listen and to hear in yourself what you know to be true, which may not be everything I say, I hope not. but what is the essence? What is that that your heart, the one in you who knows, the one who knows deeply, uh, remembers to be so? So over the course of these past uh, many weeks, we've been working this summer with a series of Buddhist teachings on the Buddha nature, on the, what are called the perfections of the heart, or those qualities that get awakened through spiritual practice, but more fundamentally are there within us when we look and understand. And we've talked about the natural generosity of the heart and uh, the integrity that we want to live from when we really look deeply. We talked about um, wisdom. Last week it was patience, if you remember. I don't know if you were any more patient over the week, but maybe at least you noticed impatience, which is a good step in the way. So tonight, the next of these qualities that are described universally through many of the different Buddhist traditions um, as one's own Buddha nature to be awakened is the quality of a truthfulness, satya, which means truth. The word dharma also means truth, the teachings, the, the law, the Tao, the way things are. And one of the beautiful things about the truth is that, as the Buddha says, like a lantern in a dark place, it doesn't matter how long there's been darkness, when the light arises, it shows things clearly. It could have been dark for a day, or a year, or an eon, 10,000 years. But when there is light, then one sees. So this speaks not only to the development or the cultivation of this capacity to speak and see and know what's true, but that in any moment that we really look and really open our eyes the eyes of our eyes and the ears of our ears and the heart of our hearts, we can see the way things are. And it is in seeing the way things are that we live wisely. Or as Krishnamurti says, when you become still without trying to change anything in the world, without any agenda or ambition, when you are still in that way, then you can see what is true. And it is the truth that liberates, and not your efforts to be free. And what really frees us is to see the way things are. Now it's said that in the hundred thousand lifetimes, in the mythology of the Buddha's uh, practices of these perfections, a hundred thousand lifetimes practicing patience, and compassion, and generosity, and integrity. It's said that in the course of those hundred thousand lifetimes, Mahakalpas, the Buddha did a number of very bad things, just like the rest of us, except for one thing. He never lied about it. That's what kept him on his path. Even though he did a variety, got lost and did a variety of terrible things, he always told the truth. He didn't fool himself or anybody else. And that is what led him to his own Buddha nature. 
to trust what's true and to speak the truth, see the truth. Okay, so we need a little comic relief here. Um, So a young man, Keith, invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful Keith, the roommate, was. She'd long been suspicious about some relationship between uh, Keith and his roommate, and this only made her more curious. In the course of the evening, watching the way they interacted, as mothers do, she thought there was more going on. And as if to read his mother's thoughts, Keith said, you know, I, I can imagine what you're thinking, but I assure you that uh, Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, um, Carrie came to Keith and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find that beautiful Mexican ladle that we used for the soup. Do you have any idea what happened to it? So he emailed, you don't suppose she took it, do you? Well, I don't know, let's just check. He emailed his mother and he wrote, dear mother, I'm not saying that you did take the gravy ladle from my house, and I'm not saying you didn't take our Mexican gravy ladle, but the fact remains that it's been missing ever since you came over for dinner. Later in the day, Keith received an email from his mother which read, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie. (laughs) And I'm not saying that you do not sleep with Carrie. But the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the gravy ladle by now. This piece is entitled This piece is entitled Don't Lie to Your Mother. They keep you on your toes, those mothers. So the Buddha, no matter what he did, didn't fool himself. He actually told the truth. Because in the end, what is that Buddha nature that's awakened in us trusts the truth more than anything. Trusts to see and speak and know what is so. And in fact, the quality of awakening, the word Buddha means one who is awake, your own awakened nature, your Buddha nature, is our capacity to see the truth and live from that truth. That is the real freedom of of heart. And in that way, awareness itself is truthfulness. So yesterday here at Spirit Rock, we had a benefit series for the, um, it was for a, um, the publication of a book called Zigzag Zen, um, Chronicle Books published it, which was a series of essays about the relationship between uh, Eastern spiritual practice and psychedelics. And so we had this big benefit yesterday, and I called it sort of the psychedelic geezers, basically, because there was Ram Dass and Stan Groff and uh, Houston Smith, who was this wonderful, dignified elder, just such a beautiful man in his 80s, who wrote the, the book called The World's Religions that has sold more copies than any other book ever written on religion. It's very good-hearted, but also somebody who took mushrooms and mescaline back in the days, um, and it completely changed his life, and, and he became a mystic after that. And this whole panel of other people, China Gallant and various others, and we were up there, and people were being introduced for this, um, and kind of telling the truth about their spiritual practice. Yes, I do Buddhist practice, or I do Zen, or whatever, but in fact, I started back in Haight Ashbury. <laughs> this is really how it happened. Um, and. Uh, we were all introduced, the person who was introducing us, the editor of this book, um, introduced Ramdas. And the way he introduced Ramdas, he said, um, Ramdas, who most of you know, um, also Richard Alpert, former professor at Stanford and Harvard, um, we could say is a man who has led a whole generation astray. <laughs> First, he led a generation into psychedelics. And then he went to India and led a whole generation into spiritual practice. And then he started the Seva Foundation and led a generation into social activism activism and care of service for the world. And now he's leading us through his wheelchair and all of what's happened to him into old age. And um, he got a standing ovation for leading everyone astray. It was quite lovely. It was kind of a lovely moment. 
Um, truthfulness. A story from Ramdas. That's why I told about this. I went as a representative, says Ramdas, of the hippie community of San Francisco to meet the Hopi elders to arrange a Hopi hippie be-in <laughs> at the Grand Canyon. We wanted to honor their tradition and affirm our respect for the land. As you can guess, it was the 60s. Four elders sat at a kitchen table in which an adobe building, in an adobe building on four chairs. There were no more chairs when I got there, so I sat on the floor kneeling opposite them so I could see over the table, but under it as well. The youngest elder was 65, the eldest 110. I could see their hands on their knees under the table. They looked like roots in the earth. There was something so absolutely connected about the whole quality of their presence. We discussed what it might mean to bring together these different groups and generations of Americans, and they told me about the difficulties they'd been having with white people. One of their young Indian braves had recently become involved in an auto accident with a truck from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The BIA truck had been at fault, but the next day the BIA found a liquor bottle nearby and claimed that the brave had been drinking. We called the young man in as elders and asked him, had you been drinking? One of them told me, and he said no. And then this elder looked at me very directly in the eyes and said simply, and he speaks truth. And a chill went through me at that moment. It wasn't just that I believed him or any doubt I might have had was silenced. I experienced a kind of primordial memory of a time when you just spoke truth, a time when relationships were built on trust. That's the way it was done because that's how people were. So there's something so compelling and refreshing about speaking the truth and seeing the truth and speaking with someone who tells the truth. It's particularly important for us to consider because we live in a culture of addiction and denial where the best adjusted person is neither dead nor fully alive but somewhere in the middle. John Gatto, the New York City Teacher of the Year, writes, think of the things that are killing us as a nation. Drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to buying things, accumulation as a religion. All are addictions of dependent personalities and that is what our brand of schooling is also producing. This was part of a speech he gave when he received his award and stood up in front of the New York City School Board and castigated them for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children in the school system. So um, that's some strong medicine, what he says, and there's some truth in it. Maybe not every part is true, but there's a lot of truth in it. We see it in the news. Um, what used to be called the War Department is now the Defense Department, you know, with peacekeeping missiles, right? <laughs> They're called the peacekeepers. And we have surgical strikes, as if it was some surgeon doing an operation to heal someone. And of course, there's collateral damage, but we don't worry about that terribly much. We have become a really a warlike nation from our war on drugs, which is pretty unsuccessful and instead fills our prisons. You know, half of the two million people in prison are there on drug charges of some kind or another. Um, to the drums beating to get us all hyped up to have a war against uh, Iraq, um, which may very well, this. You know, I, I don't have any love for Saddam Hussein as a leader of his people because I think he's really created enormous suffering there. But um, somehow I don't think that war is the way to solve the problems that we face. And we don't put the kind of money into peacekeeping and into international justice and to the support of an alternative to war. 
as a culture, as a government, as world leaders. We simply don't do it. If we put 10% of what we do into our war budget, into world making world peace, it would be remarkable. Like 1%. So I think we need to tell the truth about that, tell the truth about oppression. That if someone has been oppressed, they tend to then become the oppressor of somebody else until they learn the way that things really are in the world. And that is that oppression of others never brings happiness. It simply doesn't work. Imagine if we lived in a culture where people spoke the truth, where the news told the truth, the government told the truth, the advertising told the truth. Can you imagine? You almost can't imagine it, can you? It would be such a different world to live in if which tells you how much we've accommodated to non-truth around us. And yet, there is a cost. The people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie to own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they're the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, They're the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they're the children of loneliness. If your fear of the truth owns you, they are children of the fear of truth. So it's strong medicine. Now in the Soviet Union, some years ago, in Izvestia, the national journal of the country, in 1988 under Gorbachev, there was an official statement from the Soviet Union saying that history textbooks um, and all history exams were being canceled throughout the country and history textbooks recalled because the the textbooks of the Soviet Union have taught generations of Soviet children lies that poison their minds and souls when it canceled the history exam for 53 million children. And reporting this, the government um, uh, described the passing of lies from generation to generation, the guilt of those who deluded one generation after another, poisoning their minds and souls, is immeasurable. And today we are reaping the bitter fruits of our own moral laxity, paying for succumbing to conformity and giving silent approval to that which now brings the blush of shame to our faces and about which we do not know how to answer our children honestly. Now you say, all right, they, you know, their government was not telling them the truth, and now the newspaper, now they had to cancel the history exams. But I tell you, if you read our history books or look at our media, um, there's an awful lot that we could well cancel if we were supposed to tell the truth. This is actual statements written to insurance. Um, companies about what happened during uh, their accident from car drivers trying to detail the difficulties. Um, Coming home, um, one driver said, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. Or I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. (laughs) My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. Or an invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. Or the telephone pole was approaching. I was tempting to swerve out of its way when it struck the front end of my car. We tell stories about the way things are, um, but not always the truth about it. And whether it is here or Afghanistan or Latin America or Africa or the Middle East, um, the healing that human beings need 
will only come from telling the truth. We don't own this earth, we share it. We rent it for a little while. Nobody owns it. Or if anyone owns it, perhaps it's our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. Now it was the Buddha's power to tell the truth, called the lion's roar, that made him such an extraordinary teacher. One day, with a gathering of a thousand monks, which is just the mythological number for lots and lots of them, and nuns, the Blessed One went forth to Gaia Sisa, and there, on Vulture's Peak in this mountain, he said, everything, O monks, O nuns, my friends, is burning. In what way is everything burning? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, and the mind are burning. And with what are they burning? With what fires? They are burning with the fires of greed, grasping, and addiction. They are burning with the fires of anger, and hatred, and racism. They are burning with the fires of ignorance, of denial, and delusion. The eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind burn with these fires. And one who is wise becomes weary of these fires, weary of the burning of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, and delusion. And one who would free the heart abandons these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, divests themselves of entanglement in all of these energies and in such a way becomes free in this world. The heart becomes free and when he completed telling this story of the fire sermon, as it's called, the monks and nuns hearing this were gladdened in heart and their eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body and mind were awakened and were freed from the graspings and hatred and ignorance. And all thousand of them were enlightened, it says. And the angels and devas and innumerable unseen beings um, gave their blessings and rained flowers on them and so forth. That's how it happens in the old days. <laughs> That's really simple. We suffer. The world burns from hatred, from greed from ignorance, individually, in our families, in our communities, and globally. The end of suffering comes when human beings, we see this, the pain of greed and grasping, the pain of hatred and prejudice, the pain of <coughs> ignorance and delusion, and release our bondage from that. Rumi puts it this way, wonderful poet that he is. Your old grandmother says, maybe you shouldn't go to school, you look a little pale. Run when you hear that. Stern slaps are better. What we long for is not comfort, but truth. Pray for a tough instructor to hear and act and stay with you. We've been busy accumulating solace for too long. Be afraid of that and learn instead to stand in the truth. One of the beautiful things about the teachers, the elders that I studied with, my teacher Ajahn Chah, was how honest he was. And I came to the monastery in my robes as a, um, the first time as a monk, or came, came there to stay, and I'd been practicing as a layman, and here I was now presenting myself with shaved head, and he looked at me and he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. This is kind of his first greeting instead of come in and get enlightened or something. I hope you're not afraid to suffer. I thought, well, that's a funny kind of greeting. And then he looked at me and he said, you know, there are two kinds of suffering in this world. The kind that you run away from. And he laughed. He said, that kind follows you everywhere. <laughs> and the other kind where you turn and face it. And there's where you become free. And he looked at me and he said, so are you wanting to come in and face your suffering? Because that's what you're invited to do here. Very straightforward. And yet he had this tremendous, he would laugh as he did it, and a tremendous sense of joy and happiness. I remember one day um, a very wealthy man who'd retired, who'd owned factories and various things in Thailand, 
he'd come to the monastery and bowed and paid his respects to the master and said, you know, I've retired now and um, as is traditional in the Buddhist culture, one then makes merit by, by um, building temples or doing various forms of service, philanthropy with your wealth. And he said, I've come because I've made all these millions and I want to do great things and I want to hear from you what I should do. You know, should I build hospitals or should I help the monasteries or maybe I should give money to you, you know, kind of dangling it out there a little bit to the forest monastery and so forth. But you could tell it was all with a great look at how, you know, how much I've made and how great I am and so forth. And Ajahn Chah just peered at him for a little bit, kind of looked at him and said, you know, he said, when you come on the road to the monastery, you went over a bridge over the Moon River. He's a very high bridge. Yeah, he said, you should take all that money in a big basket and throw it over the bridge. That would be the best thing you could do with it. The man's jaw dropped open. You don't want my money? So simple and straightforward. Let go, he would say. If you let go a little, you'll be happier. If you let go a lot, you'll be a lot happier. If you let go completely, if you really know how to let go, then you'll be free. And with his monks, it was the same. And his nuns, you know, he would tease us all the time. Oh, this one likes to eat. This is my monk who eats all the time. And then he'd laugh and he'd say, he's like me, because Ajahn Chah was actually very big and round. We both like to eat, don't we? Huh? Don't you like to eat? He would say, he kind of teased the monk. He said, and when the food doesn't come, then how do you feel? You know? said, I don't mind, I can fast, how about you? You know, and this is sleepy, it was like the seven dwarfs, am I right? This is dopey and this is sleepy. This my, he likes to sleep all the time. This one's afraid of being alone, my monk. He doesn't really, you know, he just hangs out with people, talks all the time. I'm afraid if I send him in the woods alone, he'd die, that's what he's afraid. Are you gonna die if I send you in the woods alone, huh? And he would kind of tease you and then he would just chuckle and laugh. He just kind of called things as they were. And it, he didn't do it in a judgmental way. There was so much warmth and humor. And then he would smile and say, you can do this. You could go in the forest. You won't die. You, know? you could do what you're afraid of. You can face it. And you can be free. You can be free. It is there for you to face what is true. And it is in your heart, in your Buddha nature, in your true nature, that you also can be free. You can face the sorrows of the world that you've run from and the beauty of the world as it is, and you can awaken like the Buddha. One does not become enlightened, says Carl Jung, by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The invitation of spiritual life and spiritual practice, which is hard, by the way. And Sylvia wrote this wonderful book some years ago entitled It's Easier Than You Think. And she's had some regrets about the title since that time. She was thinking of writing a subsequent book that was entitled It's Harder Than You Can Imagine, right? <laughs> a genuine spiritual path, while it has beauty and joy and freedom that grows and a greater sense of honesty and patience is tough also because we face our loneliness and our fear of death and our confusion and our boredom and, and our needs and our judgmental mind. All you have to do is sit for an hour, 40 minutes as we did, and, and the judging mind comes and it has so many opinions about yourself and what you're doing wrong and then about everybody else. Ajahn Chah would just look and say, you judging mine today? <laughs> and you just laugh. So do you believe it? Because the invitation is to sit in the midst of it all and to see this small sense of self, the body of fear, and recognize that that's not who we really are. You're not those little thoughts and the small fears. That there is a true nature in us that longs to for peace, that longs to speak truth, to hear truth, to live with integrity. My teacher Gosananda, the Gandhi of Cambodia, who used to do every year a peace walk in, through the parts of Cambodia that were having the worst fighting, um, this whole long peace walk across the country. And he said, I asked him, why do you do this? He said, 
we've had so much suffering. I just want people to know that we can bear the suffering and not just live in sorrow. And so he would walk, and as they did it, this whole hundreds of people would follow them, and sometimes they'd get shot at or grenaded or whatever. They would be doing the chants of loving-kindness. And the main chant that they would do is they went through the countryside between the battle lines of the Khmer Rouge and the government troops would be hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal truth. And it is. And it doesn't matter whether it's the Israelis and the Palestinians or the Cambodians or in our own cities. It is the truth. Whenever our eyes are open. I remember teaching with Stephen Levine, very dear friend and respected teacher. We were doing a retreat partly on death and dying. And Stephen said, all right, how many of you in this room really, really think you're going to die? You know? And only about a third of the hands went up. They, people were kind of honest about it, you know? It's like that thing in the Bhagavad Gita where um, uh, uh, Arjuna asks, Krishna, the Lord created the universe in this particular story, anyway, this myth, um, what is the most wondrous thing in this wondrous world? And Krishna answers back, the most wondrous thing in this world of wonders is, that, is human beings, is that human beings can see others all around them die and still think, it's not going to happen to me. What do you think? I mean, if you look to your left and to your right, in 20 years or 30 years, one of those people will be dead, probably. It's the way it works. So one very old nun who tried out the new form of habit was discussing her funeral with the mother superior. I'd like to be buried in the old habit, she said. Of course, said the mother superior, if you'll be more comfortable in that. <laughs> Long have you undergone the sorrows of this world, long enough to fill the graveyard, says the Buddha. How then will you live? What matters if life is short, which it is? You, all of us, the truth is that we will die. Certain. The only little uncertainty is when. You know, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade. Ever, but that's all. And it's so mysterious. Life is mysterious because we die. It seems like we're so real and it's so real. And then what? Moi, gone. How could that be? It's fantastic, isn't it? It's phenomenal. Or you're there with somebody and they've had this whole full life and then not there anymore. The most remarkable thing. To follow a path with heart all the paths that you might try, what matters in the end, because life is so uncertain. It is uncertain. How then do we choose to live? To follow a path of meditation, to follow the path with heart, to open our eyes and our ears and our mind, to see the truth and live wisely in the short time that we are given. What else is of value? This is uh, Gandhi. Oh, actually, this is Martin Luther King. I still believe that standing up for truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what may. To tell the truth, to live in a sacred way. So this quality of awakening, this truthfulness is trustworthy, it's beautiful, it brings joy to speak with someone who tells the truth, to be able to see the truth, to live from what's true. Now I remember in the old days in those books by Carlos Castaneda, 
about his teacher Don Juan for those who read, you know, and Castaneda would say, I mean, Don Juan would say, you talk to yourself all the time. The inner dialogue never stops. You tell yourself stories. Everyone does. And when the stories stop, then you'll begin to find out who you really are, not all the stories we tell ourselves. And then at one point, um, Castaneda says to his teacher, Don Juan, well, will you tell me where this path is leading? You know, will you tell me the truth of where, where, where you're taking me? And Don Juan says, well, I could tell you the truth, but you don't want to know it. If I told it to you, you wouldn't believe it. You're not ready for it yet. You know, and that was sort of the plot. Carlos Castaneda was the, was the guy seeking the truth, but really sort of ambivalent about it, playing hide-and-seek. Well, I kind of want to, but actually I just want to go back to Los Angeles and, you know, get, have a hot shower and have a good meal. And, you know, I don't want to be out here in the desert with some shaman. Um, uh, that's too difficult for me. Um, so so uh, Don Juan said, I could tell you the truth, but you're not ready for it. You wouldn't understand it. The Buddha tells the truth. I mean, it's very simple. Who do you think you are? You do not exist. That's the truth. Not as a separate individual. The whole sense of yourself is an illusion of consciousness. As Kalu Rinpoche, great Tibetan Lama, says, you live in illusion and the appearance of things. Things seem solid and everything seems separate. There is a reality, but you do not remember this. When you understand this, you will realize that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Very simple. Now in meditation, we use the power of our attention to see beyond the small sense of self, the limited body, the body of fear, that's not really so true. And the way this works, it's interesting actually, thinking about um, the psychedelic geezers that we had the other, you know, yesterday and so forth, and um, all of the kind of exploration of consciousness through psychedelics. Um, my sense of it is that it's simply people who are seeking to understand what is sacred in this world, to understand who we really are, and how do we get here into these bodies? What are we supposed to do with this? Now, normally our consciousness identifies with a kind of middle level of existence. Your zip code, right? Your telephone number. Um, your bank account, if you have one. What kind of car you drive. All those things. This very limited um, sense of social identity is where we spend a lot of our time. Hi, my name is Jack. You know, what do you do when I travel places on the airplane? You know how you can sort of change identities when you're traveling. You don't have to be quite who you're. So I'll sit with people and they'll say hi. We'll introduce each other. And what do you do? Sometimes I say I'm in sales, right? Because I am, right? Other times I say, oh, I'm in theater, right? It's another way of putting it. But there's our everyday consciousness. But outside of our everyday consciousness, if we expand it, and science knows how to do this, there's either the bigger scale, we are on this middle-sized star on one arm of our Milky Way galaxy, which has 10 billion stars, and rotates like a big Ferris wheel every 100 million years. And we're going for the ride around the Milky Way. That's, that's really where we are, on this tiny little dot of a planet in this one little out of 10 billion stars. And there are 10 billion visible galaxies, and, or 100 billion visible galaxies, and every year we're seeing more of them. So there's like a bigger picture going on than <laughs> what happened at work today, right? But there's also the subatomic one where you look, you know, and there's cells, and then there's molecules, and then there's atoms, and then there's electrons, and neutrons, and protons, and then there's the subatomic particles and quarks. But then when they really look, strange charm or whatever they happen to be, even those don't actually exist. They only appear to exist because they're really more like waves than particles. And the more deeply you look, the less there's anything there except space and aliveness or energy in some form. Okay, so science has figured that out. How about us? Duh, 
right? As my teenage daughter would say most of the time. So what we do in spiritual practice is through meditation and various spiritual, genuine spiritual uh, trainings of the heart and mind is to open ourselves to see the truth of our situation, not just the truth of this limited identity with this body, which is, is pretty limited, frankly, but we get still enough and clear enough, if you have never been on a retreat, it's a wonderful thing, to open the mind so that instead of consciousness being limited to our head, it becomes open like the sky. And you actually sense and feel, you hear a bird and it's not out there, but it's something like you're chirping, you know, and you remember, oh yeah, I'm also a, a blue jay, you know, and I, I'm also the, I have the same last name as the redwood tree, where we have roots in the same place, and you hear it move, or the oak tree and the wind scraping the root, and that's part of you. The mind becomes so expanded and open, and this isn't just a fairy tale, it's a reality that is experienceable by people, whether it's on Native American vision quests, or the elders in every great tradition say, come and look at this reality because it's true. You are not just this small sense of self. The other thing that happens, another thing that happens as you begin to meditate, another dimension of the truth, is that things get smaller, not just bigger. But if you pay attention very carefully and microscopically, the breath, notice the thought as it arises, the feelings come and go, the sounds come and go, and you're quite meticulous, and you tune in in that way, which is another way of doing mindfulness practice, it becomes more and more like the atomic level. The word in Sanskrit is kalapas. And you can get so silent and attentive that when you move your arm to pick up a cup of tea in the dining room, it is not one arm, but it's 10,000 arms. Each moment, this arm dissolves and it reappears as a as sensation and experience again and again. You feel the atomic level of, uh, of existence arising in consciousness and vanishing. Everything is transparent. It's as if you can see through an electron microscope. And I'm not telling you again this as some fairy tale, but it's a relatively common experience when one practices in a deep way in meditation. And there are hundreds of other ways to open. I mean, the, the, you know, the psychedelic crowd were talking about all their experiences, and they really weren't very different in many ways than people who were sitting in their caves in Thailand or Tibet, or people who were doing vision quests. What matters in all this is not just the experience, but whether it brings us back to a sense of the sacred. Because that's, to tell the truth, that's what we've lost in our culture. We are in the sea of that which is holy and sacred, and we have forgotten. And so we misuse it. We misuse one another. We misuse our environment. We misuse ourselves. And part of our inability to see is because we're afraid. People haven't taught us that it's possible to face the sorrows of the world, to face the dukkha, the Buddha's fire from the fire sermon, that you can face the truth and that your heart is bigger than that, that the great heart of a Buddha, which is beating in your breast, can face the sorrows of the world and remain unmoving. As James Baldwin said, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with a great deal of their own pain. And so also when you sit on meditation, on retreats or here, you have the ocean of tears and the grief that you carry for the world, for the injustices, the, the grief of your own family life. Not your family, but other people's family life, right? <laughs> The, the fears that you've run from, the loneliness, the longing, all that stuff comes and you bow to it and say, yes, this too is a part of life. This is a part of the 10,000 joys and sorrows, and yet this is not who we really are. It is through not being willing to see the world as it is, not the small sense of self, but the vastness that is always here, that we get lost and entangled. And the invitation of this reminder, this perfection of the truth, 
is to look again in ourselves. What have we run from and be willing to face it so that we're really free? Because if every time you're bored or lonely you open the refrigerator or turn on the TV or distract yourself or go to whatever your addiction is, you're never going to be free. And you can be. That's the beautiful thing. You can be free. In any moment it's possible. Or to tell the truth to one another, which is such a great treasure, difficult though it is. Adrian Rich writes, an honorable relationship, that is one in which two people have the right to use the word love, is a process of deepening the truths they can tell to each other. It is essential to do this because only this breaks down our human self-delusion and isolation. To really tell the truth to another human being. Difficult, but important and refreshing. And I don't mean the truth from the small sense of self, I want this and I don't like that. That's not sort of your crabby self. I don't mean that. I mean the deep truth. Because a lot of times we meet somebody, we go, and really all you want to say is, hi, I'm in here, are you in there, hello? You know, or I love you, but you don't say that on the street very much. So you go through this whole song and dance. But really it's just, can we make a deep connection? Namaste, I see the divine in you. Can we speak from that heart of truth? There was a very interesting article in the New Yorker this last week about a professor at UC Medical School who's one of the world's experts in reading um, faces. Um, Dr. Paul Ekman, I think his name is. Um, and um, he, started, he started by studying the expressions on human faces um, for a few reasons. He wanted to know were there any, he's done it for decades now, were there any human expressions that were universal and just not culturally determined? And could you tell when somebody was telling the truth and when they were lying? So for years he studied footage from tribes in Papua New Guinea and in Africa and in Afghanistan and all these different places, um, languages he didn't speak, trying to see if he could tell whether someone was telling the truth or also whether they were happy or sad or frightened. Um, and what he discovered to his surprise, because he, he thought it was all culturally determined, is that there are a number of facial expressions that are universal around the world. And if he took a face, a picture, and, and went down to the Amazon to a group of people that had never seen white folks before and showed six faces of expressions and said, what is that person feeling? They would say frightened, you know, or happy, or, or angry, that it's that universal. But then it got more refined than that. He began to look at the parts that made up expressions and how one could speak in words and yet have a very different set of um, information coming through your facial expression. This was the question of how to tell when someone is lying. And of course he said you can't do it all the time because one of the interesting things about pathological liars is that they're really good at looking somebody in the eye and being rather consistent with what they say. And there are a lot of kind of subtle clues that ones look for. He said, but most of the time when you train yourself, and you can get quite skilled to do this in his training, which he does for various people who interview people and want to find out about how to read what somebody's really saying. He said part of what he did was just turn his television off for a year and watch politicians and people in advertisements and see the expression that was there and without hearing the words and then try to read what was really being communicated. And he said, even if somebody is telling you something and trying to lie about it, there'll be a moment, if you're really attentive, once in a while in there, where there'll be a kind of a flash of hesitation or a little other facial expression that you can begin to pick up that something else quite unconscious is also being communicated. He learned a lot from watching politicians, as it turns out, as you read his studies. But anyway, 
Um, the culmination of the story for tonight and the reason that I'm telling it to you beside that this part is interesting um, so whether you're telling the truth or not it's not just what you do with your words but it's really what we do with our body and our senses and our heart um, Paul Ekman last year Dr. Ekman was invited to Dharamsala to be part of the Mind and Life series because the Dalai Lama is really interested in Western science for the last 10 years he spent a week meeting with neuroscientists of different kinds and biologists and physicians, learning about um, the best of Western psychology and cognitive science and neurology. And so he was invited to go up there and be part of the dialogue. And then he had his time, his interview with the Dalai Lama and several other senior lamas there. And he had a remarkable experience. He said, I'd been all around the world and I'd been with people and now I watch their faces and try to understand when they're speaking what's true and when it's a little shade and when it's kind of not congruent completely. And I see this in all kinds of cultures. And he said, I sat there and I spoke for half an hour with the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And I never sat with another human being where there was such consistency of what was said and what I saw any place in the world in all the places that I've been and he said then I sat with some of his other senior teachers and the other thing that I noticed beside that remarkable consistency was the quality of their attention because I'm a student of how people you know they speak and they look away and they do they distract themselves and you get all this information if you really watch someone he said and I never sat with a group of people who had such simple and clear attention to the way things were in the conversation. So he changed his research now. He gave up what he's doing and he's become a student of the Dalai Lamas and he's now studying how do you train yourself to be that attentive and that truthful. It's his next study. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I believe that underneath it all the truth is that we really want to love and that even some of the worst things that happen in the world are deluded and misguided approaches to find safety and security and underneath that some form of love. I believe that we want to be free, that that is the truth. And that yes, this world is a world with suffering, as the Buddha said, that's also true. Anybody not have that? Raise your hand, please. You can have your five dollars back right? It's just the way it is, okay? However, given that this is a world of birth and death, of joy and sorrow, it is also possible for the heart to be free. It is possible to live in this world with compassion for every being that one meets, just as Dr. Ekman was finding in the face and the gestures and the life of the Dalai Lama and the senior lamas around him. Because life is so fleeting, what matters? To see what's true and hold it in the heart of compassion. This world has so much sorrow, it asks your compassion for yourself, for all those who are suffering, for those who are causing suffering. We are asked to see what's true and to stand up for the truth and speak what's true. To let the truth of our heart be our gift to the world. And you can do that. It is in your power. Uh, an acquaintance that I met when I was in northern India and the Himalayas and um, in Dharamsala uh, was a photographer who published a beautiful book called Whispered Prayers and it's these kind of huge full-page coffee table sized photographs in sepia of Tibetan faces and the face on the cover no it's not on the cover but it's one of the faces in there maybe it's on the back cover is of this wrinkled wizened old Tibetan nun you know the kind of faces of elders that you see elders all around the world you go, okay, this looks like the earth. This is somebody who, who does, who's not identified with the small sense of self. They've become the earth somehow. And the story has like a little one 
paragraph story about each person that he took these remarkable photographs of. And the story of this particular nun gave him the title of the book, Whispered Prayers. She spent 23 years in Dropchi prison in Tibet um, for speaking out for the freedom of the Tibetan people and for doing her prayers and praying um, for the long life of the Dalai Lama in public in Lhasa and so forth. And she simply wouldn't stop. And so she was, as an, already as an older woman, she was thrown, an older nun, she was thrown into prison. Um, and, but she took her robes and her beads with her, and she kept doing oh, many, the mantra of compassion and her prayers throughout that time. And they beat her, and they tortured her, and she kept doing them anyway. And her prayers were for them, as well as for herself. Prayers for the enemy. May you not continue to create the karma of so much suffering for, for myself and for you. And they got so upset that they took her beads away and they told her to be silent and they beat her and she wouldn't stop saying her prayers. And finally, um, in order to silence her, they took duct tape and they taped across her mouth so that she couldn't say her prayers. And so then this photographer who was interviewing said, so what did you do? She said, I whispered the prayers anyway, and the other nuns could see my lips moving underneath the tape, because I wanted them to not give up hope. And um, he said, even when I took her picture, she was whispering her prayers. What is asked of you, of your own true nature, is to see the truth and to speak the truth in this world, to let your spirit of truth be a gift, because our culture needs it, our children need it, the world needs it. And there's such a power in telling the truth. As C.S. Lewis says, a man can no more di diminish the glory of life by refusing to honor it than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the walls of his cell. I still believe, says Annie Frank, let me see if I can find it. I still keep my ideals because in spite of everything, I believe that people are really good at heart. I simply cannot build up a life of hopes on a foundation consisting of confusion, misery, and death. I can feel the suffering of millions, and yet, if I look up into the heavens, I think that it will come right, and that this cruelty too will, in the end, cease, and that peace and tranquility will, in its season, return to the earth. What do you want to dedicate your life to, is the question that spiritual practice asks. And with what truthfulness to your heart do you live? From Mahatma Gandhi, who says, where are you? Gandhi G. Uh, oh, I love this passage too. And I know it's here. Yes. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the way of truth and love has always won. Yes, there have been murderers and tyrants, and for a time they can seem invincible, but in the end they always fall. Think of it, always. Let's sit for a moment.
May you live from the deep truth of your heart and the great compassion of your own true nature. A couple of very brief things to say and then a little chant and we'll go out into this summer evening. Thank you again for coming, for your kind attention and your generosity and you're putting up with the, sort of like being on an Indian bus or something like that in here, huh? It's warm and crowded and a little bit of an adventure. So, um, because we are having this African-American um, conference, which I mentioned last week, the first time um, ever uh, having teachers from all the great uh, Buddhist traditions, Zen and Vajrayana and Theravada and Pure Land, and a uh, hundred or more practitioners all here starting in a few days, um, and then the People of Color Retreat. There will not be a Monday night dinner next week, sorry to say, because we're going to be busy cooking for all of that event. Um, but Sylvia will be here, so she will feed you Dharma. And then food you don't need, right? For a little bit, anyway. Um, and then I'll be back uh, the week following to continue with the rest of these teachings on the perfections of the heart. Um, so let's just do a very simple chant tonight. Um, in India, when you meet someone, you put your hands together in greeting and say Namaste, which means I honor the divine within you, or in some ways, I see you, I really see who you are underneath all those guises and stories. Um, and the root of that word namaste in Sanskrit is namo, which means to bow to or to honor. So let us just chant that namo nine times. And as you do inwardly, you can bow to what is called in your heart to bow to, to the beautiful things in yourself and in the world. and to the places of sorrow that you might make a prayer for or those who are in difficulty for your compassion.
May you live from the great heart of truth and compassion. Thank you. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.